favorite thriller. Presented by The Thriller Fiction Podcast. Jim Heskett talks to thriller authors about their favorite thriller books. And now, here's your host. Hi, I'm here today with Kevin Tumlinson, and I'm going to go ahead and start off. Uh, hi, Kevin. How you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? Uh, pretty good. So let me tell everybody a little bit about who you are. Kevin Tomlinson is an award-winning and best-selling novelist living in Texas and working in random coffee shops, cafes, and hotel lobbies worldwide. His debut thriller, The Coelho Medallion, was a 2016 shelf-notable Indie Award winner. Kevin grew up in Wild Peach, Texas, where he was raised by his grandparents and given a healthy respect for storytelling. He often found himself in trouble in school for writing stories instead of doing his actual assignments. Mm Mm-hmm. And he doesn't regret that in the least. Kevin's love for history, archaeology, and science has been a tremendous source of material for his writing, feeding his fiction and giving him just the excuse he needs to read the next article, biography, or research paper. Well, Kevin, my first question is, as the author of the Coelho Medallion, a Dan Cutler archaeological thriller, so my first question is, why do you write books with titles that are so hard to pronounce? Because uh, it makes them sound mysterious, man. It makes them right? stand out. You know, anybody can write, you know, something Atlantis or, you know, <laughs> something, you know, Egyptians or whatever, but, uh, or Templars this or whatever, but sure. who else? Who? What other author? Name one who's written anything titled Quelo. Quelo, is that how you say it? It's pretty, yeah. I learned that from my the guy who produced the audiobook for it, actually. <laughs> he, went, he went out and found it because it's a Portuguese name. It's named for Paulo Coelho, who is uh, the author of a book called The Alchemist, which was a very influential book for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that name, uh, I always pronounced it Coelho also. Uh, but he corrected – well, he didn't correct me. He just uh, – he was checking in with me. So I pronounced this Coelho, like the Portuguese name, right? Uh, absolutely. That is absolutely what I intended when I wrote that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> nice. So tell us a little bit about you and what you write. I uh, I write archaeological thrillers, um, which is relatively new in my career. I started my writing career – well, I started my writing career way, way, way back um, writing pretty much anything – uh, that came into my head, um, any type of story. I wasn't nailed down to a particular genre when I was younger. Uh, but I, I started writing science fiction and publishing science fiction back in 2008. And I uh, wrote a handful of books in that genre uh, and in the sort of YA fantasy genre. And those books did okay. They, they did pretty well, but it wasn't until later um, – I was on a podcast, uh, a, a, another guest of yours, a good friend of mine, uh, Nick Thacker. We, we used to have a show together called the Self-Publishing Answers Podcast. And uh, we were on air one day, and he dared me to write a thriller like he writes. And I thought, I thought you know, if Nick can do it, uh, how hard can it be? Uh, <laughs> but I, I did uh, uh, I did work on that. And that, that first one was really kind of meant to be an, a, sort of an in-joke. You know, it had a lot of in-jokes between me and Nick. Uh, I didn't expect it to do fantastic or anything, but it did. It did incredibly well. It won some awards. It hit bestseller status on a couple of different platforms. It, you know, it, it just took off. It became, it's, it's still, to this day, my number one bestseller. 
Uh, so, and it still earns me a pretty good paycheck every month. So, <laughs> so uh, and that despite it having some flaws, <laughs> your thriller career was, is based it on the idea born. of showing up a friend mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I built a career on a dare and, uh, <laughs> it turned out to be the best decision I ever made for my author career actually. And I've read the Quelo medallion. I know it features a certain character who's named after a mutual friend of ours. Uh, yes, it features uh, – so it actually – you could say that about several characters, I think, at this point. But yes, one of the characters is named Roland Denzel. Mm-hmm. Before I ever actually knew him all that well, I, I think I heard him on a podcast, uh, probably the uh, self-publishing <laughs> podcast. And I thought, you know, I for some reason I've always loved the name Roland. It's a great name. If you look at my books, I have at least three books with variations on the name Roland. <laughs> and uh, I, so I, I knew I was going to name that agent Roland. Um, and I, uh, when I heard, for some reason, the name Roland and Zell had stuck in my head. So I actually named the character before realizing who I was naming it for. Hmm. But uh, now that he and I have met and hung out, we've been to Vegas together, we've... Um, had drinks together. Uh, we're doing some stuff together. Uh, I can go ahead and just admit that it's named for Roland Denzel, the author, the uh, the fitness expert. <laughs> nice. A really good guy. He's a really he's been on my show. He's a real good guy. Uh, so I couldn't think of anyone more worthy. He is a, in in no way anything at all like Agent Roland Denzel, um, as far as I know. I mean, they don't share very many character personality characteristics, but they're both good men. So (laughs) nice. I don't think, uh, the real world Roland Denzel would take a bullet for me though. No, he might, I guess you won't know until it comes up until we put him in that scenario. So today we're actually, um, here not to talk about Roland Denzel, although he's a great guy. We're going to talk about angels and demons by Dan Brown. Uh, and that you've indicated is your favorite thriller. So could you give us a, like a spoiler-free teaser or synopsis or just give us a little bit about what the book is about? I can, and, uh, and I will. Uh, and I, uh, First, I'm going to start by confessing it may not be my most favorite thriller. It's just up there in my list for a few reasons. Uh, it is the story of Ro- – this is the very first appearance of uh, Robert Langdon, doc- Dr. Robert Langdon, who, was, who is the uh, principal protagonist in a lot of Dan Brown's um, thrillers. He is, um, this, uh, professor who teaches art history, who has an eidetic memory, uh, and who has a proclivity for finding himself in the middle of all sorts of, uh, international intrigue, uh, mostly in and around, you know, European, major European metropolitan areas like Rome and, uh, Barcelona and areas like that. But he, uh, so the book, it features the first appearance of Robert Langdon, uh, and the discovery that a group, a couple of scientists who are associated with CERN have actually invented or managed to make a sizable quantity of antimatter. And that antimatter is subsequently stolen by a, uh, by a party to be named, but the the implications are that it is part it is all part of an Illuminati plot, and if you're you if you've been reading or watching television or films, or uh, just chatting with anybody who has a pulse over the last 
a couple of decades, the Illuminati has become more and more a part of pop culture. Uh, so the Illuminati were not that well known when this book made its first appearance. Mm. And so it was a very shocking idea to the public that there could be this organization out there pulling the strings behind the scenes or, uh, you know, having a grudge against the Catholic Church. Uh, but the Illuminati have apparently stolen this this uh, antimatter. They've, they've essentially made it into a bomb that could wipe out the Vatican and they have snuck it into uh, the Vatican somehow, some way, uh, and in the process managed to kidnap four of the principal cardinals who would uh, stand a chance of taking the place of the Pope who has recently passed. So uh, our hero and a uh, and his, we'll call her a sidekick, although she actually in many ways outpaces the uh, protagonist of this book, uh, Vittoria. Uh, she is one of the scientists who created the antimatter, her father was murdered in the uh, process of this stuff getting stolen. And the two of them, uh, Vittoria and Robert Langdon, are on a race against the clock to find the antimatter, to save the um, the uh, bishops or clerics or whatever they are, uh, <laughs> the high priests, uh, and uh, save the day. So that, in a nutshell, is uh, Angels and Demons. But there, it has a—this book— by the way, has a special place in my heart because when this book came out, about less than a year, probably about maybe six to nine months before this book came out, uh, I was working at a radio show called Tom King's CompuTalk, and we interviewed Dan Brown, uh, who was not yet all that famous. He had actually written a book uh, about technology, about uh, cybercrime, basically. And uh, we had him on the show because that was a topic that, you know, we covered. But as a thank you for us, we actually helped him build his computer, a brand new computer from spare parts. We gave him some parts. We talked him through uh, how to install things. I personally was on the phone with him uh, to talk him through a few things. And as a thank you for our help with that, he actually mentions us in the acknowledgments in the front of <laughs> Angels and Demons. So that's one of the reasons why I went ahead and uh, and chose this book to talk about. But for anybody who uh, has heard of the movie or the, the book, um, The Da Vinci Code, this is the book that happened before it. So, Yeah, I've read Angels and Demons, and like most people, I read The Da Vinci Code first because Da Vinci yeah. Code was one of those books like – Harry Potter or the Hunger Games that even yeah. people who don't read have read that one. Right. Um, it just introduced you to the world of, of really of this type of thriller. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of careers came out of this, uh, by the way, when Dan Brown, uh, uh, first released angels and demons, um, it, it, it began a buzz. And then when Da Vinci code hit and really hit hard, especially with the film, um, it, it created a demand for this genre of thriller. Mm -hmm. And that's why you got guys like Steve Barry and, and uh, James Rollins and, you know, these thriller writers who uh, may or may not have had a career w without Dan Brown. But because of Dan Brown, they got on a fast track for mm -hmm. for a thriller career. And he, he created a genre that I love that I write in. So somebody to be grateful for. What do you think it is about the character of Robert Langdon that's so intriguing that people are willing to follow him across multiple books? I think it's two things. Um, there is, in some respect, an aspect of superhumanity to the guy in that he has a photographic memory, for one. 
but also that he has such a wide knowledge of um, history and and how and art history in particular, but uh, symbology, the, these this sort of secret language. So that's intriguing to people, right? Right? It's like learning. It's like being let in on a secret code. Uh, but as superhuman as he can sometimes be, the thing that makes Robert Langdon uh, sort of endearing is how human he is, how he fumbles. He makes mistakes. In the in the uh, first um, portion of the book, the first like third of the book, he makes a major mistake that that basically throws off their timing on saving a life. Uh, so, you know, in the, his quote sidekick for the book is the one who figures it out and solves it for him. So even though they wouldn't even know about, you know, what a, a path to take, basically, they wouldn't have any clues, uh, without Robert Langdon, it, he wasn't the one that solved the first problem. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the sort of thing that makes this, these stories endearing. Cause we can kind of, even though we, most of us don't have eidetic memories, God, I wish I did. Um, we do identify with, you know, occasionally being wrong. <laughs> mm. Sometimes I'm a sometimes wrong, but we, we can identify with a character like that. Yeah. I seem to remember speaking of the sidekick that in most of the Robert Langdon books, I think I've read all except for the last one origin. He, he has a female sidekick where there's some tame sexual tension between them. And usually the female sidekick is, is smarter and uh, more capable yeah. He is, from what I remember, if I remember right, it's been he's it's been a, a bit of a doofus. <laughs> yeah, and, and the thing is, and he had, uh, Dan Brown has actually talked about this uh, at length, really. But there's a lament to Robert Langdon that he's always paired with these capable, brilliant, beautiful women who are completely out of his league and mm. completely unattainable. <laughs> uh, and there is sexual tension. There is a little bit of romantic tension, but nothing ever really comes of it uh, because they're, they're too busy surviving for one thing. <laughs> uh, but even, even beyond that, there, there's a, so, there's a sort of respect and, and Langdon suffers from the, uh, the same sin. This is another reason I think he may be relatable, especially to guys, but that sort of syndrome of, uh, you know, the guy and the really cute girl get along great, giggle together, have fun together. She starts to think of him as a brother. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's what happens. You think mm -hmm. of Robert Langdon as the the sort of doofus brother, really smart, you know, some, somebody you really love and care about, uh, but you couldn't date him. <laughs> mm -hmm. Not until later when, you, when you're settling down. <laughs> Can you tell us about the villain without spoiling anything? I don't remember if uh, it's been too so, long since I've read it. Um, I'm going to say there that I don't want it's This is going to be a tricky one because I don't, I definitely do not want to spoil this for someone who hasn't read it or seen the film. Um, let's just say that uh, Dan Brown has a tendency to, to present a villain who is certainly a villain but who may not be the only villain. There is usually someone else behind the scenes, maybe pulling the strings or influencing things. Um, and it's not always who you think it's going to be. So uh, he, he likes these multi-tiered uh, antagonists. He, he likes to present antagonists that have layers. 
and not just not just uh, personality layers, but layer, you know, sort of layers of influence. So um, there is, let's just say that there is someone with a vested interest in influencing the choice of the new pope, uh, and they have engaged the services of others who are very capable and very deadly, um, who also have their own designs and their own agendas. So it's not a clear cut answer on the villain, uh, without giving things away, but that's part of the charm of, of books like this. Uh, you, you want to read this because you, uh, love the heroes and, uh, unlike sort of the old cliche mustache twirling villains of, of old, uh, it's, it's almost unclear who the villain is by the time things are over hmm. the best the best stories by the way and dan brown i think recognizes this and does this uh skillfully i think but the best stories are um not so much that there is someone who is purely evil that you must stop but someone who actually might be um right in some way who might actually have a point in some way they've just chosen the most horribly wrong way to uh, go about meeting their own agenda so that's the that's the type of story this is, and isn't don't you find that pretty often in thrillers that for a really good thriller the villain has to be equally as compelling as the hero? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you can't some, find yourself somehow identifying with the villain, um, then you're probably not well connected to the story. Uh, and 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 I say that knowing that I fail at that <laughs> in my own books pretty often uh but you know you should have some sort of empathy for the for the villain if if not sympathy you should be able to understand their point of view why they're motivated to do what they do and uh not that you would take the same actions that they would take but you could understand how you might get there mm -hmm. and that's uh that's the sign of a good story altogether it doesn't matter if it's thriller it doesn't matter if it's romance uh, whatever the uh, story is, the antagonist of that story, the the force against which the protagonist throws themselves has to be something um, discernible and understandable and empathetic. Mm -hmm. And that's good. Did you see the Black Panther? I did. Yes. I think that and speaking of villains, I think that was probably the best Marvel villain ever, because as as I don't want to spoil anything for anyone uh, who hasn't seen it. But when the villain revealed his plan and his motivation, I was like, I, I kind of I see where he's coming from. I right. kind of think he's right. Yeah. I so my I only have a slight problem with um, the the sort of Kilgore was right uh, con, uh, ideology. Uh, and that is that what he was proposing his solution is a familiar solution if you've studied history and we also know that it doesn't work yeah. however looking at that you you became completely sympathetic as well as empathetic to uh to what he was up against he, he you get the sense you know that what he's doing is wrong yeah you know but you you also understand that he's doing the wrong things for essentially the right reasons and uh, especially in today's climate, you know, the, we've got there's a lot of division in the world right now. It's a little sad to see. But um, I think we need more of that ability to pay attention to both sides and try to understand both sides. We need to be able to see the bad guy is not just purely you know, a bad guy. Yeah, they can't. We can't. We can have the story where we're fighting the mindless automatons 
bent on uh, conquering and overcoming uh, all life or whatever. We can we can have those stories, but they aren't as compelling. You know, there's a reason I couldn't think of an example of one. Right uh, there, I, you know, of maybe like the Borg in Star Trek or something. Uh, they're not as compelling a villain as uh, as, you know, say Kilgore in uh, Black Panther or, you know, even uh, Ultron in the the one, the Avengers film. Mm-hmm. He was actually you could kind of understand where he was coming from, too. Yeah. Even though he was a complete sociopath. <laughs> So. Yeah, I, I I do want to pull this back to Angels and Demons, but yeah. I'll just say this about the Borg. I I remember maybe they're not compelling, but they were terrifying enough. Yeah, yeah. Because they were so powerful and yeah. so and unrelatable. Yeah, yeah. They were terrifying enough that I still kept me glued to to, uh, to my chair to make sure that Jean Luc Picard was going to make it through okay. But it was kind of a one off, right? Because when you start seeing them every week, they weren't as compelling. When yeah, you what, saw uh, Jean-Luc Picard become Locutus, your blood <laughs> ran cold for three months while you waited for the show to come back. Yeah, and then when they pulled the curtain back and you see more and more about the Borg, yeah, you're right. They're not as they're not as terrifying. Anyway, okay, we're not. We can, All right, we could. That's a whole other show. <laughs> well, let me pull this back to Angels and Demons. So, yes. Aside from the fact that you're mentioned in the acknowledgments, what uh, what do you think makes it stand above other thrillers that you'd want to? mention it as your favorite or one of your favorite thrillers i think um because it's an origin story of sorts uh because there are further books in the series we'll say and we get to see robert langdon evolve over like four more books uh this is the origin story this is where we saw the birth of the hero so there's part of it is about that um the history involved is real history the science involved is real science uh he's made a few mistakes in there um one notable mistake (laughs) he kept referring so i I get what he's talking about because i write about this exact same concept in my own books uh the idea of comparative mythology and how uh for example christianity has um at various times in history has uh taken over the traditions of other cultures and faiths and just basically swapped out the God. Right. Um, so that's a real thing. We know that's a real thing. Uh, regardless of where you stand, I'm a Christian. I stay, but I, I, I get that Christians have done this. Uh, but he at one point said, uh, well, you know, baptism was something the Mayans, uh, practiced, uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. He's talking about all these, all the things that Christianity, ancient European Christianity took from central American mythology, which they did not encounter <laughs> until mm-hmm. until like a thousand years after the founding of Christianity. So he's he's kind of mixed a few things up. But hmm. uh, despite that, it shows real thought. It shows uh, he's put this this together. He's he's done his research. So you know you you get to participate in that and feel like you're a part of it. And that's one of the things that really compelled me. And it drives my books now. I do the same sort of thing. The same sort of research. He does now with my own work. What do you think? Here's a more general question. What do you think makes a thriller a thriller? What separates it from another genre like mystery? So there are elements of mystery. There are elements of practically every genre in a thriller, depending on the type of thriller. I think what makes the uh, a thriller a thriller is that you've got uh, a, con- a contemporary setting, 
as contemporary as it has to be, you know, within, you know, within the span of, of, uh, 50 years from today forward or backward, I think it's probably about right. No, no real like sci-fi future settings, but you've got a contemporary setting on a contemporary hero, um, who is human, just even if they have a, uh, some advantages, maybe they're a special, uh, ex special forces. Maybe they are, you know, uh, a ninja, <laughs> an archeologist, uh, you know, uh, whatever. Maybe they have a eidetic memory. They might have some, some advantages, but on the whole, they are a standard issue human being. They, they weren't born with great power. They weren't, they can't fly. They can't do, uh, anything like that. And, um, you pit them against extraordinary circumstances and they fail and then get back up and solve the problem. Uh, and they generally thrillers revolve, even though they can involve a quite a bit of action, uh, they almost invariably revolve around the intelligence of the protagonist. Somehow that protagonist has going to have to think his or her way out of trouble. Um, and be very clever about it. That that's those are the sort of elements that I think are fairly unique to um, thrillers. You, if you have a mystery, typically the person solving the mystery they may find themselves in danger, uh, but the, any cleverness is directed towards solving the crime. The thriller in the thriller and uh, the thriller protagonist has to solve the mystery, but also has to survive. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, typically they have to figure out how to survive by their wits. So I, th I think that that's, uh, that's a fairly unique, um, a fairly unique aspect of thrillers. So just FYI, my next series is going to be called X Special Forces Ninja Archaeologist. I think you have a winner. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the audience is built in. It will apply to everyone. It goes everywhere. It does all things. I'm, I'm in. I'm in. I have already read this book. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kevin, what book of yours would you like to talk about today? Uh, I think my my latest is probably a fun one to talk about. It's called The God Extinction. Um, it is. Uh, I, I just released it like less than a month ago, and um, like. Angels and Demons and Da Vinci Code. It revolves around my protagonist who is, uh, he's not a professor, but he is a doctor of archaeology. He's an archaeologist who is uh, also, he's a multi-hyphenate, by the way. He's an archaeologist who is also a, uh, a, he has a background in quantum physics. So he is a very intelligent man. He does not have a photographic memory uh, as much as I would want one myself, but he does have a vast knowledge of both history and science and puts those to work uh, quite often. And in uh, The God Extinction, it asks the question, what if the gods of mythology had been real? What if they were real, and but were just no longer among us? Uh, what it really does is build on a lot of research I've done into uh, what's called comparative mythology, which I mentioned earlier, uh, which is the idea that we have a lot of mythology and symbolism uh, and sort of... Uh, cultural ideas that are um, essentially the same between various cultures. So, for example, the best example is the, uh, the flood myth. Uh, every major religion, including 
the Central American religions uh, or cultures, every major culture has a a mythology that revolves around a flood myth. Mm-hmm. Um, every one of them, and you know whether they, whether they're disparate from each other or not, uh, they also tend to have these godlike figures who share characteristics. There is in it, coming back to Central America, uh, there is a figure called Viracocha, who is a uh, a bearded white god <laughs> uh, in a, among a people who'd never seen facial hair, by the way, um, who walked among the uh, Central American peoples, uh, the Americans, the early Americans, ancient Americans, performing miracles, healing. Uh, he had his uh, group of 12 people who walked with him. You know, if this story sounds a little familiar, raise your hand. I mean, there's 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 a lot of that sort of stuff uh, throughout our, our uh, cultural history across the world. So um, the God Extinction looks at the idea. It's a follow-up to a short story. It was actually the very first Dan Kotler story called The Brass Hall that I wrote as a prequel before I released Quelo Medallion. Uh, I just wanted to have two books in the, in that series when I released Quelo Medallion to give me, give people somewhere to go. Right. Mm-hmm. While I wrote the next book. Uh, and so, uh, but the one complaint I always had from readers about the brass hall was that they wished it was a full length novel. So what I decided to do was rather than extend it, uh, you know, and rewrite it as a full length novel, I wrote a sequel to it and, uh, I set it essentially in the same place with the same ideas 20 years later. Um, and so the events in Brass Hall take place 20 years before God Extinction. And what we've found is a Celtic, the tomb of a, of a Celtic god that ends up uh, turning up in Egypt, where it should not be. <laughs> and so this sets uh, Kotler and, uh, and Agent Denzel tags along on this one, even though it's not an FBI, this one's not an official FBI case. Um, but it, it, uh, Kotler is now finding himself embroiled in this mystery uh, about why this tomb is here. What? How, how did it get there? And uh, what's the connection? You know, what? Why? How is everything connected? And uh, at, over the course of the story, we reveal more connections to other cultures and that sort of thing but uh it's that's that's what it is it's an exploration of this idea of what if the gods were real uh, what would what would that mean for us historically so that's uh i i i think it's a great book i mean it's getting a lot of great reviews uh people seem to be digging it and you know that's the one i recommend <laughs> nice so that was the god extension which you can pick up on amazon and it does have some nice reviews. It's at 4.9 out of 5 stars. Wow, congratulations. Yeah. That's impressive. Um, all right, that was The God Extinction, and my guest today was Kevin Tumlinson, and I want to thank you so much for hanging out with me and talking you about it, your man. favorite thriller. You got it, man. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks all a right. lot. Take care. Hey, it's Jim Heskett here. I hope you enjoyed that interview on the Your Favorite Thriller podcast, talking with thriller authors about the thriller books that they enjoy, plus their own work, and also some occasional silliness thrown in just for fun. I want to let you know about a couple things I've got going on. If you will go to jimheskett.com forward slash reader group, you can get free thriller books which I'm guessing you'll like, because if you're listening to the show, you probably like thriller books. Well, how about getting some for free? 
Also, if you go to jimheskett.com forward slash contest, you can get uh, a chance to win free stuff, and all it will cost you is your email address. That's J-I-M-H-E-S-K-E-T-T dot C-O-M forward slash C-O-N-T-E-S-T, jimheskett.com forward slash contest. Thanks for listening to the show. I really appreciate it. If you enjoy the show and if you're getting stuff out of it, I would love it if you could go online to Apple Podcasts and the Google Play Store or Stitcher and leave me a rating and review in the Apple Podcasts app. It's super easy to do. All you have to do is scroll down below the show. You can tap a button to rate and then you can write a quick review. You don't have to write a freaking book. It can just be 10 seconds worth of hey this is the best show ever or you know whatever you want to say i don't want to put words in your mouth but anyway i really appreciate you listening and i hope you will stick around this podcast only comes out from time to time so just stay subscribed and when new episodes are ready they will magically drop on your phone thanks have a great day